Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. COVID Bryant. What? <laughs> Do you want me to, to intro you like that, Chuck? Well, I guess the cat's out of the bag. Uh, yeah, we wanted to start this episode off with a PSA. I have COVID, everybody. And uh, the reason I'm making this so public is a couple of reasons. Uh, one, to remind everyone that we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm vaccinated fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is almost 100% likely the Delta variant. There's no way to prove that because I, I've done a lot of research. They're they're only testing for variants in like specific places, then using statistics to like blow that out to the whole. Mm-hmm. But it is the it just like this week it was breaking news that it dropped from about ninety percent uh the vaccine effective to sixty four percent against the delta variant yeah i mean that would that alone would make me suspect that's what it is, yeah, and it's the most dominant strain it's the most likely to bust the vaccine mm-hmm. uh I went out of town over the weekend with friends, and like forty percent of that group have covid now, so and they were mm. vaxxed, so oh my God, uh, it is no joke, everyone. We're not out of the woods. please keep taking it seriously, please get vaccinated uh if you haven't, and if you can use this, I know we're probably preaching to the choir mainly, but if you can use this example to try and convince someone you love to get vaccinated that is hesitant, then that's why I'm saying this. Well, Chuck, I know Jerry would never come on and say this, but we're very, very glad that you're doing okay. <laughs> and, and we love you very much. We're very proud of you. Chuck. Jerry doesn't express herself emotionally like that. No, she doesn't. Not, not like you do. <laughs> no. I'm well known for that kind of thing. Uh, but the good news and the final reason I mention it is is also get vaccinated because it is doing at least part of its job in that I had a couple of days of feeling pretty bad with a cold and have been, had four days now of feeling pretty good. And mm-hmm. it is it is doing its job and keeping it very mild. And uh, I tick off a couple of categories where if I wasn't vaccinated, it may not be so mild. Yeah. You know? that That's why you're L-U-C-K-Y. You ain't got no alibi. <laughs> you lucky. All right. Well, now we can talk about some not-so-lucky young women. That's true. I'm hats off to you for that PSA too, by the way. Sure. Also, thanks. I never finished. I never finished, Chuck. There's Jerry Jerome Roland over there. Right, and right. This is stuff you should know. That's right. So now you can take over my former uh, duties of introing the episode. Well, I mean, it's just funny. This is another, uh, not funny, but I feel like we are diving more and more into sort of the horrors of not only just the workplace, but I feel like we've covered a lot more over the past couple of years these situations in America's history where mm-hmm. corporations have tried to just bury things that made them look bad at the expense and the lives of people that work for them. Yeah, we've been examining how terrible life is without government regulations. That's right. Another PSA. <laughs> it's true. And and like you said, we're talking about some uh, unfortunate women who um, were gravely mistreated uh, in part because of like the 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 place and time that they occupied, but also because they were women, yeah. and because there were again no workplace safety laws or anything like that. Um, but they, despite you know everything that was stacked against them, including things like their gender, um, they they 
basically rose up and, and established some of the first successful lawsuits against employers for basically workplace abuse or yeah. at the very least workplace um, dereliction of, of duty yeah. of the employer to look out for worker safety. I think that's the technical way to put it. Yeah, and, you know, we're talking about the Radium Girls, and uh, there was a movie about this. It's not mm-hmm. – uh, we we loved the hundreds of emails about the ghost of uh, – how do you pronounce <laughs> yeah. it again? The Brotherhood of the – Beast. Brotherhood of the Brotherhood Wolves. Brotherhood of the Wolf. That's right. Was the name of the movie. And apparently the I'm the only Yeah, the only person who has never seen that movie. Yeah, same here. Same here. Like I think we are the only two. I I don't I can't remember getting more emails about a single thing than that one. Yeah, they're literally still coming in. And I uh I do remember once I saw the trailer, I was like, Oh, I know that movie a little bit, but mm-hmm. I didn't know the story. But there was a Radium Girls movie from three years ago that I sort of half watched today um <laughs> it it's it I, I don't want to <laughs> i don't want to disparage anyone because filmmakers tried to get the word out about an important event in history but mm-hmm. i'll just say that the rogerebert.com website gave it one and a half stars and that's the only thing i'll say out of how many stars a hundred <laughs> <laughs> wow it was not very good you got a one and a half percent that is wow no. Yeah, I I, uh, I did not watch that one. I haven't read the book yet either, but um, one of the problems with taking up something like this is like, it was the same thing with Henrietta Lacks when we did uh, our episode mm-hmm. on Kula Cells, where it's, it's really hard to kind of dig past the wall of journalism surrounding like the release of a popular book yeah. and anything that is written in that book and that book's take on the story, all of that stuff basically becomes it like that's it that's that's just that that's this person said this and this person played this role and and you know it just becomes like the the story i guess is what i'm trying to say fortunately for radium girls and and i'm not taking away from kate moore's book at all um from everything i've seen it was extremely well researched and like it did a really great job of bringing this to the to the forefront too yeah. um but fortunately there's also like a lot of scholarship that was written and, and researched before that that still exists on the internet. So you can kind of like get into some other details too besides, well, the book said this and the book said that. And right. then also, fortunately, we had our buddy Dave Ruse help us out with some research too. And Dave hates books. He does. He's <laughs> no. always burning books. No, Dave, in fact, is the one that said uh, we should definitely mention uh, Kate Moore's 2017 book, The Radium Girls, colon, Mm-hmm. That we should have a sound effect for colons now. What if we had like um, one of those in studio choruses that go colon or colon? <laughs> that'd be great. Okay. We, need, we need a barbershop quartet. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, the Radium Girls, insert sound effect. The Dark <laughs> Story of America's Shining Women. Yes. I'm not sure if I like that pun, but yeah. Not one, but two puns. The Dark Story oh. of America's Shining Women. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. So the whole thing about radium and and, uh, the radium girls, and that's what the press dubbed them, they also, I believe, called themselves the Society of the Living Dead, which is some pretty serious gallows humor considering, like, the state and shape that they were in. Um, They they were, um, they kind of came out of this era where radium, like the 19-teens, the early 1920s, the first the first radium girls there are actually two sets, as we'll see, but they came out of this era where Three radium sets. had. 
Was there three? Yeah, there was another factory that we're not even going to have time to talk about. <laughs> okay. Well, let's say there's, there's, there's what you, what decade was that one? I think it was the same decade. I think it was just another okay. factory that, you know, we just can't do the, a two-hour show. I got gotcha. you. So they, um, well, we're well on our way already, Chuck. <laughs> um, but they existed in a uh, in an era where radium was seen as this thing that was just this amazing cure-all tonic, a wonder of nature that was um, put in all sorts of different products from cigarettes to condoms to there was a water called Radithor that yeah. was irradiated water, that radioactive water that you would drink to get the radioactivity in your body because it was, you know, thought to give you, um, like, health, energy, vitalization, cure all sorts of diseases. Uh, it said that it bathed the stomach in liquid sunshine. Uh, and all of this was pretty new stuff because it wasn't um, more than two decades before uh, that Marie Curie and, and Pierre Curie um, discovered radium in the first place back in 1898. Yeah, I mean, they discovered it, and I think they even named it. I think Latin mm -hmm. uh, radius means ray, and they knew that it emitted rays of energy even at that time. And, you know, or very early on, they started using radiation to try and help treat cancer. Like, hey, let's put this in a lead box and cut a hole in it, and then put that hole over the human body, like aiming it toward where a tumor might be, like very obviously rudimentary stuff. And you have to make a pew, 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 right. pew, pew sound the whole time. That was kind of one of the roles of the technician at the time. That's right. Uh, and you should have seen the audition tapes. <laughs> Some people That's had crazy. zero rhythm. It'd be like, pew, pew. Like, sorry, pew, you're well qualified. Pew. but <laughs> uh, So uh, Curie, actually, she died um, in 1934 from aplastic anemia, which is a bone marrow disorder. Mm -hmm. caused by radiation exposure. So they knew that it was dangerous. And, uh, but it was still like, like you said, it was in the, you know, it was known as a cure for the living dead in that Radithor water. Mm -hmm. And I mean, basically used for everything from gout to fatigue. And it was just one of those crazy times in American history where now we look back and we're like, this is just nuts. But yeah, back it, then they I didn't mean, know. Well, so there were two tacks from what I could tell. There was the beginnings of um, academic scholarship, and both of the Curies had some sort of suspicion. And there was this idea that there was easily you could be exposed to too much. You didn't want to have too much radium, but a little bit was good for you. But then there was also this academic tack that was like, no, this stuff might not be good at all. Like, we right. should really be careful with this. But the popular... The popular idea of it yeah, that you yeah. would read in the newspapers or, you know, maybe even what your doctor thought about it um, all came from radium research that was almost exclusively underwritten and in a lot of cases carried out by companies that made their money off of radium. Like they were just touting this stuff as a, an amazing wonder element, basically. Um, and, and so there was like almost these two uh, overlapping worlds that weren't connected at the time in our understanding of radium in like the 19-teens and 1920s. Right. So one of the other kind of cool and interesting things about radium is that it can make things glow in the dark. Mm -hmm. And glow in the dark is very sort of like, who cares now? It's still kind of fun. But in the 1920s, <laughs> glow-in-the-dark was a very big deal. It was basically the future and kind of space age. And if you had a glow-in-the-dark watch or a glow-in-the-dark uh, clock, uh, 
mm-hmm. then you felt pretty cool, basically, because you could see that thing in the dark. And so, of course, these companies wanted to start painting watch faces and clocks with radium. And they got young women and sometimes even girls as young as like 14 years old to do this stuff. Yeah. I think the first company, at first they were working on um, military clocks and military dials like you might put in an airplane or something. And the first uh, company, I think, that was established to do this was United States Radium back in 1916 in New Jersey, Orange, New Jersey, I think. And like you said, they hired young girls, very, very young girls. Um, I think the oldest one I saw by far was 28. But for the most part, they were in their teens Teens. to early, early 20s. And this was like a really big deal job, like that was very highly paying. Uh, I think they were in the, the women who painted... Uh, radium uh, or watch dials with radium paint were in the top 5% of earners in America at the time. And this is a factory job. Yeah. And then also it was prestigious too from what I saw. Yeah, the movies and, you know, <laughs> God, I don't know if it's accurate or not. I'm, I'm going to say what the movie said. The movie said that they were paid a, a penny per face mm-hmm. and a high earner could crank out 200 a day. So that's about two $2 a day. Okay. So but that's like a million dollars today, I think. That's also what the movie said. Well, a million dollars, <laughs> double that. <laughs> and that's about what a gram of radium cost. Uh, yeah. In today's dollars, that is. I think it was like a hundred grand a gram yeah. in the 1920s for a gram of radium. So they were, they were, they were themselves highly paid, but they also um, were working with what was at the time the most expensive material on earth. Um, and it makes sense that it would be so expensive. Like, radium is really rare. It's super radioactive, but it's really, um, it occurs in very small amounts, which kind of lets you realize how radioactive it is. That, you know, it's a daughter isotope of uranium, whereas uranium decays, one of the things that it becomes is, is radium. Um, and in uranium ore, I think the Curies, when they first um, discovered radium, they 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 found that after they took uranium out of this ore, pitch blend, which we talked about in the uranium mining episode, that the pitch blend was still radioactive. So, like, what else is in here? And out of 10 tons of uranium ore, they managed to extract one milligram. So, it would make sense, especially at the time, that it would cost a couple million dollars for a single gram of that stuff. Yeah, and so these girls and young women were... Uh, this stuff was getting in their hair. It was getting on their clothes. Um, it was sort of a badge of honor because you would go out that night on, dancing or something, and you would glow a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would even purposely put it on their teeth sometimes. Uh, they were called ghost girls, and it was it was it wasn't a fad in that it was widespread because only a select few like had their hands on it. But I think mm-hmm. that's one of the reason the girls like these jobs is because they could go out and, like, attract attention because they had this glow in their hair and on their dresses. Yeah, I think also people knew that they were working with radium, and radium at the time was like um, Missy Elliott mixed with <laughs> ecstasy back in the late 90s, like as cool as what? it got, you know oh, what wow. I mean? Goodness. Yeah, thanks. I'm just trying out some new stuff. How's it going? It's good. In fact, I think maybe we should take a break. I need to re-examine that analogy so I can really fully grasp it. (laughs) All right. You just let it sink in, buddy.
So, Chuck, I got to say before we start back again, you don't seem like you have COVID. Are you faking? <laughs> I'm not faking. Uh, I am a little spacey, though. You're doing great. I mean, <laughs> you've researched an episode of Stuff You Should Know, probably the most challenging podcast on the planet. Yeah, sure. And you're presenting it like just like an ace. So, hats off to you again. Well, thanks, man. <laughs> you, you got it. So, um, you were saying before that the Radium Girls were covered in... Um, radioactive dust. Yeah. And they were because they would mix their own paint. Uh, and they worked with a specific kind of paint called Undark. It was a proprietary blend where they would mix some, um, they would basically mix it with water and a little bit of solvent and create their own paint from this radium dust. So radium dust was like all over the place, which is bad enough. You know, you can get pretty radioactive from being exposed to radio uh, radium dust like that. But it was far, far worse in those working conditions because they were actually ingesting the radium through the paint as well. Yeah, I mean, this is where, if you think this already sounds like a workplace violation, this is where it just gets bonkers because Mm -hmm. they would actually, you know, if you're painting a one millimeter wide number on a watch, uh, and I think the watch faces themselves were like three and a half centimeters, Mm -hmm. you, you have to have a tiny little point on the end of that paintbrush And painters know one way you can achieve this is something called lip pointing, which is when you dip the the brush in the paint, in this case radium, and then you put it in your mouth and just sort of press it down with your lips to make that point finer. And they were doing this with radium. They were literally ingesting, like orally ingesting radium in their mouths, which means orally, and and inviting cancer into their bodies unknowingly. Yes, which is some pretty, um, I mean, that's not good. Like when you're ingesting the paint itself, apparently there was a guy who worked for Prudential, the insurance company. Back in 1925, he published a paper. His name was Fred Hoffman, Frederick Hoffman. And he calculated that um, the radium girls who, who painted these watch faces, because of that lip pointing technique, they were ingesting something like, one and three quarter grams of this paint every day. That's a lot of money. They had to lip point so much. It is a lot of money. From the viewpoint of the uh, of the uh, the factory owners, you'd think they would have been like, "No, we got to stop that," because that is a lot of paint. But that's also a lot of radium that they were taking in too. And the big problem with that <clears throat> is not just that you know it's getting inside of you now and it's burning a hole right through you. It's not really doing that. Radium is a um, an alkali earth metal. And it just so happens that calcium is also an alkali earth metal. Yeah. And to your bones, they're they're the same thing. Your body doesn't differentiate between the two. And we our bodies are set up to divert calcium basically from the bloodstream right to the bones to help build strong bones, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do the same thing with radium too, our bodies do. So when you ingest radium, it enters your bloodstream and it goes right to your bones and it sets about screwing you up big time from that point on. Yeah, and apparently some of these young women were saying, you know, they were asking questions early on. They were saying, like, is this bad for you? Can it hurt you? Um, and, the you know, the U.S. Radium Cor- Corporation was, I mean, they started covering up very early what was going on. They were doing their own research, and they said, and, of course, the people that were making that radium water did the same thing. They would have, they would hire out these private companies to do this research, basically, and say, everything's fine. 
mm-hmm. they said, you know, ingesting a little bit is just fine. A little put a little rose in your cheek, and it's great. And I guess they just sort of full stop there. They didn't talk much about how much ingesting a gram every time you did that over time would be, like over a period of years. Um, right. I think in 1916, they put out their own publication yeah. um, from the Radium Publishing Company that said, uh, the physiological action of radium sounds not unlike a fairy tale. Right. Which is weird. And they said that the red blood cell count surges. Um, so you you will actually kind of seem a little healthier. I couldn't right. find that anywhere. Uh, from what I saw, you um, it causes hemolysis, which is like the rupturing of red blood cells. But um, this is the kind of stuff that like these publications were peddling, and doctors and the public were just taking it wholesale. Um, and that was where that idea that radium was good for you came from was from publications from people like the Radium Publishing Company. There was just a lot of credulity at the time, I guess, um, which is weird because this is also like one of the, the most avaricious periods in American history as well. What does that mean? It means that like people were preying on other people for, for profit and money, that like they, you would do anything for a dollar, you know? Okay. Uh, avarice. Oh, okay. Makes yeah. sense now. I'm a little, like I have COVID, active, take it easy on me. The act, I will, man. <laughs> I'll let that one slide. And I don't know if I've said this or not. I know Jerry wouldn't, but we're really glad you're doing good. <laughs> uh, and it's funny, in that factory, they didn't uh, say anything about the fact that, like, oh, you know, can this be dangerous? Because I've noticed all the men that are working around radium mm-hmm. are wearing these big lead smocks and aprons, and uh, they're handling this stuff with ivory-tipped tongs, What's the, and we're putting this in our mouth, and they're like, don't worry about that. Yeah, and it wasn't so at at US Radium in Orange, New Jersey. It was it it was part of the corporate culture to basically just treat it really cavalierly. Like even the head chemist, mm-hmm. um Edwin Lehman, who would pay dearly for um his cavalierness was recorded by an investigator who we'll talk about in a little bit. Um as as basically just handling lumps of radium or or like rad, like radium powder wow. without any kind of gloves, no protection, no lead apron, anything, and just kind of just you know scoffing at the idea that that it was it was you know dangerous. So you know some people there knew that it was dangerous and treated it so, but the corporate culture in that company in in particular was that you know don't be don't be ridiculous. Who cares? Stop stop talking. Stop asking questions. Kind of thing. Yeah, so this next part, I'm going to issue a trigger warning uh, because it certainly got me with my tooth fears. Mm -hmm. So if you have dental fears and tooth fears, uh, just be warned. Uh, This is from Kate Moore's book, and it's about the very first, uh, I think the first young woman to fall ill at the the USRC. Her name was Molly, I don't know if it's Magia or Magia. Mm -hmm. And this was in 1922. She was 24 years old. She said she felt like she was about 90. Um, She had this really, I mean, she ached all over, but she had this pain in her lower jaw specifically. And then eventually went to the dentist, had these these abscesses that were just oozing in her mouth. And her dentist tried to pull some of her teeth that were rotting. And a, a part of her jaw literally came out. And it says in in the book, he removed it not by an operation, but merely by putting his fingers in the mouth and lifting it out. Uh, And I think a few days later, 
took out her entire lower jaw the same way, just pulled it out of her mouth. Yes. That's horrifying. And if you have what's known as dentophobia, you're probably on the floor right now and may never go see a dentist again. No, I hope no me. one listened to that. It, it got me as well, man. When I, I was just like, this is not, this is so wrong. The The crazy thing is, is Molly Magia, she, she lived for, um, I believe, another year or so. Um, with this increasing abscess. And like the radium was sitting in her bones, in this particular um, case, in her jaw, in her teeth, um, and just decaying the tissue around it, the bone around it. And she just basically rotted from radiation poisoning from the inside of her jaw out. Um, she suffered from abscesses and eventually died from an abscess. The This abscess, apparently your whole the whole left side of her face, the different abscesses grew into one mega abscess, and it finally reached her jugular vein and just ate away at her jugular vein, and she could no longer pump um, uh, pump pump uh, blood, blood from her heart. Yeah, that, see, now I sound like I have COVID. <laughs> uh, the the I mean that is horrific as you can imagine, and it gets uh, worse in that when her doctors were asked what their best guess was of the cause of death, they blamed it on syphilis. Right. The company jumps on this and says, and this was a big part of the movie, they basically start saying that these girls are are spreading syphilis around each other, and that's mm-hmm. what they're sick from. Uh, I think in the movie they called it VD, of course. But um, it was, you know, one part to sort of shame them into being quiet and right. to say that – and another part to just obviously, you know, take the uh, blame as far away from radium as possible. Men. Yeah, for real. So, you know, not to say in the in the doctor's defense, but they did, did, no one knew what what radium poisoning was at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So, Maybe. it's not like syphilis was an entirely, you know, just bonkers diagnosis, but there was another thing I saw that that um that they considered too that just didn't make sense but had kind of come and gone before among matchstick makers. Um, which was something called fossy jaw or phosphorus jaw, where you're you're like if you were exposed to white white phosphorus, which matchmakers were when you're making the head of a match, um, it it basically gets um, absorbed into your jaw and rots your jaw. So they had kind of seen something like this before, but not since like the early 19th century. It was much more prevalent in the 18th century. And they didn't think that these these uh, women were working with phosphorus anyway. So it was kind of baffling. But yeah, the idea that, that you know, even if the doctor did naively or innocently, you know, say it was syphilis or something like that, the company very much jumped on that kind of thing to use it to paint that uh, uh, unflattering picture of the women who would go on to litigate this company. And it was totally that kind of a company. And it was run by those kind of people, for sure. U.S. Dial was. Yeah, so 12, uh, and and up to this point, 12 of them died. I think about 50 of them were ill at this point. And they are still full steam ahead. They don't halt production at all. They don't even call for an investigation until 1924 when it leaks out to the press a little bit. And they start to get, you know, some sort of bad press about what might be going on. So they commissioned an independent investigation that found out that there was definitely a connection going on and that their exposure to radium is leading to these illnesses and deaths. 
mm-hmm. they buried it and got their own uh, not independent commission together. They investigated and came back and said, oh, no, 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 these uh, young ladies are suffering from a hysterical condition brought on by coincidence. Yeah, and that was actually not even like a panel's uh, opinion. That was um, Arthur Roeder, the president of, of U.S. Dial. Was that was his guy. opinion. Yeah, that was his opinion of the whole thing. And that, uh, that independent investigation was a legitimately independent investigation. It was led by Dr. Cecil Drinker and his wife, Dr. Catherine Drinker, who are both Harvard, pub, uh, Harvard public health professors. And when they came up with these findings, like, yeah, this is this these women are all dying horrible deaths from radiation poisoning from eating this paint because of this stupid lip pointing technique. Um, and the company did bury it. Not only um, did they bury it, it's even worse than that. They took the drinker's report and altered it so that it said that every girl is in perfect condition and then submitted it with the drinker's name on it to the New Jersey Labor Department. Um, and, it, it, like, the drinkers had no idea. They also told the drinkers if they published their initial report, they would sue them, that they'd been working confidentially. And, um, like I was saying, like, it was just that kind of company. They were just, they would engage in dirty tricks. They would do some of the most underhanded stuff you can imagine. Like, they, I've got one more anecdote, Chuck. This is going to knock your socks off. They hired an a, um, industrial toxicologist named Frederick Flynn from Columbia to basically pose as a doctor to examine one of the, um, the dial painters um, and basically tell her that her health was fine. She was in fine shape. And they had a VP from U.S. Dial sit in and make it seem like he was a colleague of this person who she thought was a doctor who emphatically agreed and backed up his position. That's the kind of stuff U.S. Dial did. Reprehensible. Agreed, Chuck. Agreed. All right. So we should probably take another break, and uh, we'll talk about how everything changed a little bit right after this. Right, so everything changed when a man got sick, and that's that's basically the way it went. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1925, a 36-year-old chemist at uh, USRC died of anemia, and the Essex County Health Examiner, a guy that will figure in pretty prominently here going forward, Dr. Harrison Martland, got involved. And, you know, this is this is what it took. It took a man dying for them to sit up and pay attention. Um, he launched an investigation. He it was it was very sneaky actually. He actually secretly recruited uh, the technical director from USRC as a radiation expert, and his name was this is one of the best names we've ever said on the show, mm-hmm. Doctor Sabin A. Von Sakaki. Mm-hmm. And they took autopsy tissue from uh, some of the bone from these young women who had died or I'm sorry, from the original chemist, and they analyzed it, and they said, yeah, he's he is basically glowing with radiation. Yeah, I have to say also, um, Dr. Von Sochaki, he um, was even more <laughs> than just the technical director. He was the co-founder of U.S. Radium, and he actually created the radium paint, Undark, that the company used. So the idea of him basically turning 
uh, on the company in order to get to the to the bottom of you know what was going on. I, I you know I think that's pretty commendable in that sense. It is. Um, he got he and March Marchland got a uh, Geiger counter. I think mm-hmm. it was sort of a early crude version, basically, and they started going around to the houses and in the hospitals where some of these uh, young women were, and everything was radioactive. Um, they tested employees at the plant that even weren't sick. They were radioactive. Basically, everyone that worked there was radioactive, including uh, Von Sakaki himself. He breathed yeah. into the thing, yeah. and I think he registered the highest radioactive level of everybody and died within a few years from uh, from jaw cancer. Yeah, at age 45. And the, from what I saw also, if you took a, Ge- a Geiger counter to the gravesite of um, these people who worked at these factories, still today, the, the Geiger counter would measure, would set off. It would be set off by the radioactivity coming from six, six feet of earth separating you and, and the uh, remains. Isn't that nuts? Dude, it will do that for 1,000 years. Wow. And supposedly the bodies are still glowing underground. I saw that one woman who worked at another one we'll talk about, um, uh, Radium Dial Company, she was exhumed to be examined um, for, I think, a lawsuit later on. And they found that she was so radioactive that when they reburied her, they buried her in a lead-lined coffin. Yeah. I mean, this is super radioactive, right? I think we've established that. It's just hard to wrap your mind around how radioactive these people were. And it's crazy that they even live, some of them live for, you know, a few more years. Like like um, Molly Magia, she died pretty quickly, the woman whose jaw came out. She, she died within a couple of years. Some women lasted four, five, six, even, I think even seven years possibly. And the amount of radiation they were exposed to and the effects that it had on their body made... From the time they got sick to the time they died, just basically like a living hell. Um, and the fact that they're still radioactive today, it really kind of drives home like how how painful that must have been for them. Because apparently bone pain is not, it's not like regular pain at all. Like, you know, if your muscle hurts or joint hurts, you can just kind of like move your arm or something and it starts to feel a little bit better. With bone pain, you can't do that. Nothing makes it feel better. It's just like constant pain. Uh, and that's what you get when you have radium in your bones. So five of these women got together uh, that were still living, obviously, and went to court. Uh, or they didn't go to court right away. It, it took a long time. It took a long time for them to get enough money together to hire attorneys because there wasn't anyone initially who would take these cases pro bono. Um, and so it took years to raise the money to do this. And uh, one of the women's name was uh, Grace Fryer. Uh, she was basically the leader of the factory workers, and she uh, had to wear a back brace because her spine had basically rotted out from the inside mm-hmm. and was crushed. Uh, she had twenty, at least 20 surgeries on her jaw. Uh, another woman's name was Albina Larisse. Uh, she had two stillbirths and couldn't walk. Uh, another woman was Catherine Schaub. Um, she, I think her cousin died, was another fellow worker there. And so they were like, we, we have to do something here. Um, they were, you know, they had all these medical bills. They couldn't even basically pay rent. And finally, after a couple of years, managed to find an attorney who would take it on pro bono. And, um, 
you know, they, they did, they knew they didn't have long to live at this point. And it's not like they wanted some windfall of money. They just wanted to get by until they died. And they wanted to make sure that this didn't happen again. Yeah. And again, this is like new stuff, basically, where workers are like, these were unsafe working conditions. We're going to sue our employer. This is pretty like groundbreaking. So initially, the women asked for, I think, 250000 a piece, um, each for all five of them. And their lawyer, um, Raymond Barry, uh, he apparently was a really good lawyer and really kind of fought the good fight for him. Um, and one of the ways that they were ultimately successful, because it's kind of an understatement to say that U.S. Radium fought this uh, lawsuit rather than settling, um, was that they recruited the the press, basically. And in particular, the editor of the New York World, a guy named Walter Lippmann, um, took up this cause. And like, you know, at the time, the New York newspapers were like the most important media organizations in the world. And the New York World was like one of the bigger ones. So it was like, you know, it was having like all of the 24-hour news networks on your side, drumming up public support for your cause. And that really helped them. But even in the end, they didn't get anything even remotely close to that quarter of a million they were asking for. So what the Radium Corporation did at first was they said, you know, in New Jersey, the law says that we only have to pay you anything if it's within the first two years of your exposure. And because it took so long for them to raise this money, it was beyond that point, Mm -hmm. which is just a pretty vile thing to do, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually, they settled for $10,000 each plus five, I'm sorry, $600 a year for when they were alive, which was only a few years for each of them. I think uh, within five years, all of them had passed away. Um, It was later exposed that the judge in the case was a stakeholder in USRC. I saw that too. uh, Which is really pretty dirty, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I think by 51, um, 30 years later, 41 of those original painters had died from uh, different cancers. Yeah, not a single one of the um, original five litigants um, from the the lawsuit um, made it past age 38. Uh, And that's like, you have, by the way, a 0.1% lifetime risk of developing bone cancer. Bone cancer is really rare. Like, you can get cancer in your bones if you have a different cancer that spreads to your bones. But to start out with bone cancer, like many of these women did, it's incredibly rare. Um, So the idea of a cluster of them all happening in this one factory and the company having nothing to do with it was preposterous. So the fact that they just got to settle for 10000 um, per woman was actually kind of a coup. But one of the things that the the um, five uh, initial five radium girls were fighting for was to um, to to create awareness that like this is dangerous. And there's other other women out there in the country and in the world who are doing the same thing, eating radium pain every day, and we want this to stop. And it actually did have that effect, that knock on effect, and not one, but Chuck, as you told me before, to my astoundment, two other cases. Um, where companies were basically forced to to um, to settle, and eventually radium paint was driven out of use. Yeah, the other one, or one of the other two, was the radium doll factory that we mentioned earlier in Ottawa, mm-hmm. Illinois. And you know, I don't know if you can rank like which ones were were more gross and dirty and awful, but radium dial, uh, they actually did know what was going on the whole time for years. They had been. Uh, testing their employees. They had doctors coming in 
and they were giving them annual physicals and they were recording radiation levels and they just never told them basically. Uh, I think before they went and filed that lawsuit, they were just suppressing information, burying everything they could. Mm-hmm. They did, they even did autopsies and then tampered with those autopsies. I think that's what you were mentioning earlier was that the other company did that too. Mm-hmm. And they also lucked out by having a, an amazing lawyer too. They were led by two women, Catherine Wolf Donahue and Charlotte Nevins Purcell kind of took the lead for the, the lawsuit against um, uh, Radium Dial. And this is, you know, years after this had made like the national press, the, the um, U.S. radium lawsuit, like it was a, everybody was talking about it. And for years, some companies managed to avoid any kind of culpability. And finally, Donahue and, um, and Purcell, um, with the help of their lawyer, Leonard Grossman, filed lawsuit against uh, Radium Dial. Um, they tried some underhanded stuff themselves in addition to the whole autopsy thing. But once they were found out, they they decided to shut down and then reopen in New York as a different company. And they said, oh, yeah, that other company was terrible, but it doesn't exist anymore. We're a new company now, so forget that lawsuit. And uh, they, were, they were ruled against and were held uh, accountable still. Yeah, and uh, obviously, like you mentioned, because of all of this, uh, it was a very big deal for this country as far as Work, uh, workers' rights, safety in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of directly led. It took a long time, but it kind of directly led to the um, to the forming of OSHA, yeah. uh, which was a big deal. I think it directly led in 1938 to the uh, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, um, and of course, this was for the public at large, so we weren't ingesting stuff like that in our cosmetics. But it also protected workers who were putting that stuff in the cosmetics. Mm-hmm. Years years after the public was protected for sure, but yeah, it definitely had like a real a real impact and a real effect on on the world. Um, one of the things I saw though about Radium Dial Corporation's headquarters, it was finally demolished in 1968 in Ottawa, Illinois, and the the town used the the like rubble as backfill and landfill around the town. So now there's 16 radioactive Superfund sites around poor little Ottawa, Illinois, um, that the EPA's dealing with cleaning up and is causing all sorts of problems for the um, for the residents of the town. So it was like this one big problem, and then they spread it out all over town when they, they used the rubble. Yeah, not super fun. Super fun. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, a, there's, a, there's a really <laughs> important D on the end of that. Got to really overpronounce that D. Agreed. You got anything else about the Radium Girls? I don't. I mean, the movie's on Netflix. You can check it out. It's uh, <laughs> it's a little late to endorse it now. Well, I mean, it's not terrible. I think on Rotten Tomatoes, it had like a 70-something. But okay. it, it just uh, critically wasn't well-reviewed and um, also not by me. I see. I got you. Um, well, since Chuck said also not by me, of course, everyone, that means it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, I'm going to call this a Nashvillian's response to the Grand Ole Opry show. Uh, hey, guys, just want to give you a shout out about how much this native Nashvillian enjoyed your episode about the Grand Ole Opry. I grew up hearing about the Ryman's perfect acoustics and stories of country stars drinking at Tootsie's Bar behind the Opry until it was time to go on stage and running through the aligning back doors. My first job was actually at Opryland Theme Park. Oh, wow. I wonder if we met. Uh, It was at the water (laughs) ride in the Flume Zoom. I think I do remember you, Camille. 
Uh, <laughs> immediately across us was the Porter Wagner stage that Mr. Wagner himself performed every Friday. I now live in Chicago, and honestly, it's a little hard to visit Nashville since it's become a destination hotspot for bachelor and bachelorette parties. I didn't know that. Did you know I that? I didn't either. No, it makes sense, though. I mean, I know that's where you had your bachelor party. <laughs> I'll never forget that night. Sure, Nashville. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, plus, skyrocketing rents and new developments have pushed out a lot of locals and mom-and-pop businesses. Future episode recommendation, repercussions of being an it city. Uh, but listening to your episode reminded me of the quirky little city I grew up in. Plus, I learned some cool facts about the Opry I didn't know. A uh, longtime fan, that is Camille McCarthy. That is high praise coming from a OG Nashvilleian, you know? Yeah, and Camille also responded when I told her it was going to be on Listener Mail with a big woohoo. You guys are awesome. I just snucked out your Venus episode while grocery shopping. Fantastic. Um, well, thanks a lot, Camille. Appreciate that. Hope you got some good groceries. Uh, hope you wore a mask while you went grocery shopping. And I hope you're vaccinated. Nice full circle there. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, Chuck, Jerry, Chuck's COVID, whatever, you can write us all an email to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.